0: One of my favorite movies is The Swiss Family Robinson. It was released by Disney Pictures in 1960. The movie starred John Mills and Dorothy McGuire. It was shot on the Caribbean island of Tobago. The story is about a family en route to New Guinea. After a storm at sea and, you know, some tangle with some pirates, they end up shipwrecked on a South Seas island. With little hope of rescue, the family makes the most of their situation and they create this tropical paradise. They build an elaborate tree hut using parts of the ship's main cabin. They invent a system for running water and they add other conveniences to their new home. In the end, of course, they live happily ever after. As a kid, I would watch the Swiss family Robinson and then I would spend hours imagining myself marooned on some exotic island, swims in the lagoon, you know, life in the treehouse. It all seemed fun, easygoing, carefree. What a wonderful life in a pristine, unspoiled garden Shangri-La. Even as an adult, it doesn't seem so bad. No more eight-to-fives, no more fighting traffic, No more bills and bosses. No more house notes and car repairs, income tax and corrupt politicians. Don't know why those two go together, but. No more deadbolts and burglar alarms. No more war or crime. You know, I believe movies like The Swiss Family Robinson, they play on a deep down longing in every human heart. C.S. Lewis once observed, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is I was made for another world. Well, here's a truth. God made you and I for the garden. Adam and Eve began life in a garden paradise. Sin got them evicted, but ever since, humans have wanted to return. Whether we realize it or not, we long for the garden. And all that we do is an attempt to get back. Today, it's a jungle out there. Our world is out of order. It's out of hand, overgrown, chaotic. But when the king of the jungle returns and takes possession, he'll tame the jungle and he'll restore it to a garden. One day yet future, God will fulfill our human longing and return us to the garden from which we fail. Our earth is due for an extreme makeover. God will repair the damage done by sin and its judgment and he'll restore the fallen planet to the paradise he intended. That's what we find here in chapter 20 of Revelation. God is going to establish his kingdom on the earth. And he begins by ridding us of our arch-nemesis. John writes in chapter 20 At the end of chapter 19, John is near Jerusalem. He's providing us the play-by-play of the mother of all battles. The nations have rallied to Armageddon to fight against the Christ. But Jesus returns. Despite their opposition, with His breath and with His brightness, He kills all His enemies. But there were leaders who orchestrated this revolt. You remember the Antichrist and the false prophet, they were chief culprits. They ordered the execution of everyone who worshiped Jesus and refused their mark. Chapter 19 recounts their capture and the disposal of them in the lake of fire. But there was a ringleader, the mastermind behind the rebellion that began in the Garden of Eden. The ringleader himself is the devil. And so now in chapter 20, God sends an angel with a strong chain to incarcerate the devil. Now, this is interesting here. The devil's two stooges, the beast and the false prophet, they receive eternal, final torture. They're cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, according to chapter 19. It's like being arrested, then sent straight to the funeral penitentiary. You know, usually you're held in the local jail for a few days until you're arraigned or processed. But these guys are sent straight to hell. Do not pass go, do not collect $200. The devil, though, gets held over in the bottomless pit. This is the temporary place of punishment. If the lake of fire is the supermax prison, the bottomless pit is the county jail. It's still hot as hell, and it has hell's characteristics, but it's one step short of the lake of fire. This is where unbelievers are today. They're jailed in the bottomless pit. And here is where Satan gets chained up. And at the end of verse 3, John explains why. For after these things, he must be released for a little while. Apparently, God isn't through with Satan. He still has a use for him. In verse 8, we'll find an explanation for his final purpose. But you know, this brings up an interesting sidebar. Satan's existence, even his mischief, apparently has always been at God's discretion. Not that God approves of the devil's specific acts. He doesn't. The evil he authors and the pain Satan causes grieves the heart of God. Nevertheless, God allows Satan some latitude. He uses him in a sense. You know, God employs trials and temptations to strengthen our faith, to mature us and develop us. But neither trials nor temptation would have any teeth without a tempter. At the end of the age, Satan must be released for a little while, we're told, for the same reasons he wreaks havoc today. Now, notice, too, the duration of Satan's incarceration. We're told a thousand years. In Latin, it's the term millennium. This is why you'll hear terms like the millennial reign of Christ or the millennial kingdom or just millennium. Jesus is going to set up His kingdom and reign over this world for a thousand years. The first word in verse 1 implies that the last events occurring here in chapters 19 and 20 are chronological. In Revelation 19, Jesus returns to destroy the armies who oppose Him. Then in chapter 20, verse 1, it follows, Then, here's what comes next, Satan is chained And Jesus reigns. Both are sustained for a thousand years. After Jesus' second coming, He sets up His kingdom on the earth. And Jesus won't rule by Himself. John writes in verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. The army that rode with Jesus from heaven now helps Him rule on earth. That includes you and me, the church. But not just the church. Notice he adds, Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. Believers martyred. They were sent to the guillotine. They were beheaded for the cause of Christ in the great tribulation, now serve in Jesus' new administration. Imagine, they were mocked and martyred for the cause of Christ. Now they'll sit on thrones and help Him rule. Verse 4 tells us, And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Jesus is going to establish a literal kingdom on this earth that will last a thousand years. You remember the very first message that Jesus preached? Was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came the first time to establish God's kingdom on earth. Yet in His day, and even today, you'd be hard-pressed to point to God's kingdom on a map. It has no borders, or buildings, or budgets. His kingdom today is invisible. It's spiritual. His kingdom today is known only in the hearts of believers. In Luke chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus said, "...the kingdom of God does not come with observation." or with fanfare, with outward demonstration. Nor will they say, see here, or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom that Jesus rules over today is a spiritual kingdom that exists in the hearts of those who trust in Him. Yet still, the Old Testament is packed with prophecies of a coming king who will sit on an earthly throne who will rule this world visibly and tangibly over a geographic kingdom. 2 Samuel 7 predicts that a descendant of David will sit on the throne of Israel and rule the world forever. This is the prophecy, incidentally, that the angel quoted to Mary when she discovered that she was with child. Remember he told her, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of His kingdom there will be no end. The Old Testament predicts that God will establish a physical, political kingdom on planet earth. His throne will be in Jerusalem. All the world will come and bow before Him. He'll rule with a rod of iron. Imagine Jesus will be the police. And the fulfillment of these promises occurs right here in Revelation 19 and 20. Remember in His model prayer, Jesus told us to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well now in Revelation 20, at Jesus' second coming, this prayer is finally and fully answered. You know, just a few weeks ago, our president was inaugurated for a second term on the steps of our nation's capital. Imagine a similar scene on Jerusalem's Temple Mount. Our Lord Jesus addressing throngs of people from all over the planet, articulating the goals of His new administration. His first term, He reigns spiritually. But in His second term, He'll rule politically and legally and corporally. On the cross, Jesus redeemed or purchased planet earth. When He returns, He'll take possession of what belongs to Him. One day soon, our world will be under new management. And I long for that day. Revelation 20 gives us only the duration of Jesus' kingdom. A thousand years. But there are a host of other Old Testament prophecies that provide us many other details. We're told of the quality of life and changes in the earth's ecosystem. Even the lifestyle that folks live in the kingdom. Remember one of the plagues in the tribulation is the poisoning of the waters. We talked about this earlier. Well, in Ezekiel 47, verses 8 and 9, it describes how the earth's waters will be healed and rejuvenated when Jesus reigns. Isaiah 30, verses 23 through 26, tell us that there will be longer periods of sunshine to revitalize the planet's vegetation. Under Jesus' administration, the earth will be restored to the garden paradise it once was. We'll live in Eden again. Isaiah 11 Tells us how God's kingdom will even impact the animal kingdom. He'll resolve hostility between animals, even between man and animals. Isaiah 11, verse 6 tells us, The wolf shall also dwell with the lamb. What a day. Natural predators will no longer exist. God will alter the food chain. Animals will no longer be carnivores. Imagine this Bulldogs won't swat yellow jackets. And yellow jackets won't try to sting bulldogs. Imagine that. Isaiah chapter 11 tells us that God will remove fear. The fear that protects humans from animals and vice versa. Verse 8. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. This will take some getting used to, moms. Your baby's favorite pet will be a copperhead. Isaiah 35 verses 5 and 6 tell us there'll be no birth defects in the kingdom age. No Down syndrome or cleft palates or spina bifida. Can you imagine? Isaiah 65 verse 20 comments on the longer lifespans. It says a man hundred years old will be considered a mere child. You know, the Bible tells us that before Noah's, Noah's flood, men lived long ages on the earth. 600, 700, 900 years old. The phenomena of aging is a mystery. We don't really know what triggers the aging process. Whatever it is, Jesus will lift it in the kingdom. You know, in Romans chapter 8, we're told that today all creation groans as it awaits its redemption. This is what Julie Andrews sang when she said, The hills are alive with the sound of music. What she didn't tell you is that they're playing in a minor key. They're playing a funeral dirge. All of God's creation is groaning over the fall of mankind in the aftermath of his sin. You see, when mankind rebelled against God, he threw a wrench in the gears of life. A capriciousness invaded nature. The gentle rain that waters your lawn now also can flood a city. That breeze that lifts up a kite can splinter a house into toothpicks. After the fall, Mother Nature went nuts. Twisters and hurricanes went on a crime spree. Nature now is the leading culprit of random acts of violence. Today, Mother Nature has a terrible case of PMS. She goes crazy sometimes. In a fallen world, nature is a mixture of both beauty and brutality. Every time I hear a tree creak or a dog howl at the moon, I wonder if they're not expressing their angst over the conditions that they're forced to endure in this fallen world. And yet one day, the curse of sin will be lifted. When Jesus reigns over planet earth, the natural order will be restored to its former and perfect and pristine and peaceful state. Yet the greatest benefit of living in the kingdom age will be the unlimited access we'll have to our Lord Jesus. Isaiah 2 verses 2 through 4 describe how people will flow to the king there in Jerusalem. How Jesus will teach them his ways. Verse 4 of Isaiah 2 tells us, They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Under the influence of King Jesus, this war-torn world will finally know peace. And the peace won't just be nationally, but it'll be locally. In the millennium, there'll be no need for deadbolts or security systems. Crime will be reduced to a minimum. For one, there'll be no Satan. He's chained for a thousand years. Another reason is that Jesus just won't tolerate it. He'll enforce what's right and punish what's evil. And realize, during this millennial kingdom of Christ, a strange mix of people will occupy planet Earth. Did you know mortal men will live alongside resurrected believers? Understand, there will be humans who will survive the tribulation. These people will continue to marry and repopulate the planet. With improved conditions, with longer lifespans, a population explosion will occur. The offspring of these survivors will retain a sin nature. And even without the devil's influence, from time to time, they'll need to be corrected. And they'll be saved the way we're saved, by faith in God's grace. Along with the population of mortals that will occupy the earth, the church, that means you and I, along with the Old Testament and tribulation saints, will also live on planet earth during this kingdom age. After we descend with Jesus at His second coming, we'll hang out. We'll help Him rule. Second Timothy 2 verse 12 tells us, If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. That's our destiny. You Remember 1 Corinthians 6 verse 2, Paul asked the believers, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? The implication is, is that we will. Think of the lessons that we'll have to teach the mortals in the kingdom age. I mean, we've chalked up quite a resume. We've been through trials and heartache and pain and tears. We've learned the effects of sin and the need for faith. We'll be able to coach these people during this time. When people living in God's kingdom need to be reminded why it's wise to obey the Lord, we'll have first-hand knowledge, first-hand reasons to give them. Remember what Jesus said to His trusted servant in Luke 19? He says, well done, good servant. Because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. Notice this. Apparently, authority and government in the kingdom is one of the rewards we'll receive for our current faithfulness. I want you to know this is why I'm serving the Lord the best I can now. I'm hoping I'll get assigned a few tropical islands to rule over in the kingdom age. In the millennial kingdom, we'll live among the mortals on earth. But according to 1 Corinthians 15, by this point, we'll have put on our immortal, incorruptible body. At the rapture, we'll receive resurrected bodies. Our bodies will have the same capacities Jesus had after His resurrection. You recall how He'd pop in and pop out on His disciples. Apparently, His body wasn't confined materially or spatially. He could dematerialize and then reappear elsewhere. In fact, the disciples thought he was a ghost until they touched him and felt the scars of his crucifixion. And you and I will have the same type of resurrected body. I like to say, we'll travel at the speed of desire. Want to go to Hawaii for the afternoon? You'll just think it and then presto, you're there. You know, as we talk about this future kingdom, you should know that not all Bible teachers agree with the literalness in which I treat it. Some folks teach what's called amillennialism or no millennium. Amillennialism teaches that the thousand-year reign of Christ is merely symbolic for the church age. That one day Jesus will return and that's the end. Other folks advocate post-millennialism. That Jesus will return after mankind brings about a golden age on planet Earth. This was really popular in the 1800s. But now, with two world wars and the nuclear age behind us, this has lost some steam. According to postmillennialism, the job of the church is to create a utopian society that will usher in the second coming of Jesus. One current form of postmillennialism is called Kingdom Now theology. Rather than expect Jesus to return, Christians need to take over earthly institutions now. Their goal is to Christianize society and government. Create for God a political, social kingdom right now. Sadly, this was the mistake first century Jews made when they tried to fashion Jesus into a political Messiah. And you remember, He refused to cooperate. His earthly kingdom is not now. Today... He's building His kingdom spiritually. His physical kingdom is yet to come, but it will come. So here's the problem with both post- and amillennialism. If the church is the kingdom, and we're in the thousand-year reign of Christ right now, then why is it Satan bound? That's what I want to know. But one look at the filth on the internet, the recent spree of school shootings, you could go on and on. Makes you wonder if we're currently in the kingdom, then Satan must be on a pretty long chain. For me, amillennialism and postmillennialism, they fall flat on two counts. First, they put far too much emphasis on the work and wisdom of man. That we are going to usher in the kingdom of God, that we are going to create a golden age. Are you kidding? Well, certainly if humans can solve the multiple dilemmas facing our planet, we should try. But we've got to admit that the ultimate answer is with God, not with men. We need Jesus to come back. And then the second thought I have is that both schools of interpretation here, they they take the unfulfilled promises that God made to Israel and they apply them to the church. And I think that's dangerous. It denies a literal interpretation of Scripture. No, these Old Testament promises that God made to His people Israel, though they're still yet to be fulfilled, they're both actual and they're factual, and it's in the kingdom age that they'll find their ultimate fulfillment. This is why I am a pre-millennialist. I believe Jesus comes before this thousand-year reign. I believe with all my heart that Jesus will literally and physically return to planet Earth. He'll usher in His kingdom all by Himself. He'll reign over this world for a thousand years. He'll restore all that sin has damaged. And in the process, He'll fulfill every single promise that the Bible makes to the people of Israel. That's what I believe. Back to our text. John writes in verse 5, But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Back in John chapter 5, Jesus spoke of two resurrections. He said, For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Believers will be raised up to receive life in heaven. Unbelievers will be resurrected in order to stand judgment. And both resurrections are found here in Revelation chapter 20. What the Lord didn't mention to us in John 5 is that a thousand years separates these two resurrections. The first resurrection begins with Jesus. In fact, the New Testament calls Him the first fruits of the resurrection. Jesus is the first of the first to overcome death, never to die again. Then the church joins the resurrection at the rapture. We're changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Followed by the Old Testament believers and those martyred by the beast. They get resurrected at the end of the tribulation. This first resurrection comes in three waves. The second resurrection, or here, the rest of the dead, aren't resurrected until the thousand years ends. As Jesus said in John 5, God resurrects unbelievers to condemnation. We'll see this in verse 11. At the great white throne of judgment, the bottomless pit is emptied out, and the rest of the dead appear before their Maker to receive their permanent and fatal and final sentence. Here's the moral of that story. Be part of the first resurrection, not a member of the second. For we're told in verse 6, Blessed and holy is He, who has part in the first resurrection, over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with Him a thousand years. In verse 7, the plot thickens. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. And as if you couldn't guess what he does. Now remember, Satan has been chained now for ten centuries. He's had some time to take a personal inventory of himself. I mean, he's thought this through, considered his mistakes. Oh, if ever Satan wanted to turn over a new leaf, this would be it. But no. As soon as he's released, he's right back to his old lies and his rebellion. He's incorrigible, like a criminal who refuses to be re- rehabilitated. As soon as he hits the street, he's out for revenge. We're told Satan goes to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, combatants in an earlier war. Check out Ezekiel 39. We're told he'll gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. Satan is back to his mischief, stirring up another rebellion. Did you hear about the devoted Christian lady who was dirt poor? She lived her life hand to mouth, never really knew where her next meal was coming from. And yet she trusted God for all her needs, and and most of the time God supplied faithfully. Of course, her atheistic neighbor, he couldn't figure her out. If her God existed, why was she always in need? One day he, he overheard her praying. She was praying a desperate prayer. Lord, please, I'm hungry. Please, I need some food. But the atheist decided to teach this woman a lesson. He went down to the supermarket and he bought her several big bags of groceries. He set them on her doorstep, rang the doorbell, and then he hid in the bushes. Well, as soon as she opened the door and saw the food, she started shouting, Praise the Lord! God heard my prayer! That's when the atheist, he jumped out and he scoffed at the lady. He said, God didn't bring you those groceries, I did! The woman answered, praise the Lord. He's heard my prayer and sent the devil to make the delivery. (laughs) You know, Martin Luther once described Satan as God's ape. Like the organ grinder's monkey. Satan exists for the master's purposes. I mean, even Satan's rebellion plays right into God's hands. He's God's puppet. He's on God's string. Think of the cross, for example. Oh, I'm sure Satan relished the pain that he inflicted on Jesus the beating, the nails, the rejection. And yet, it's by his stripes that we're now healed. He was bruised for our iniquities, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was rejected so that we now can be accepted. At the cross, Satan played right into God's hands. And here's another example of how he unwittingly serves God's purposes. You know, if you've taken a college psychology class, you know that for the last several years, the big debate in the discipline of psychology has been between nature and nurture. Which is the greater determiner of human behavior? Are our dysfunctions the result of some genetic defect? Or can they be traced to a deficient environment? You see, if my problem is me, I have nobody to blame but myself. But if it's my environment, then I can blame everyone and everybody. This is why most people choose nurture. Well, I'm a sinner because I had poor parents. Or I grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. Or I I didn't have enough money. Or I didn't have a good education. Or I had evil friends. Or I couldn't find a job. Excuses? excuses but at the end of this thousand years God is going to step into this debate and solve it once and for all he ensures that no one walks off into an eternity in hell thinking that they have a legitimate excuse think think this through for a thousand years now mankind has existed in a perfect environment Jesus is on the throne he's made the world new Peace and prosperity, holiness and happiness reigns in every corner of the globe. People have been treated fairly and flawlessly. And yet the folks who populate the planet are still sinners at heart. Like men today, they're born with a sin nature. Now with Jesus on the throne, they've lived by the rules and they're better for it. But they've only conformed to an external standard. They haven't been transformed by the Holy Spirit. These people need to be born again. And no one realizes it until Satan is let loose for a season. For all of a sudden now, people have a choice. The devil comes and he tempts them. Oh, oh, you know more than God. Who needs God anyway? You can be your own God. We've heard all this before. But the people at the end of this kingdom age will be hearing it for the first time. And it'll strike a rebellious chord in their hearts. It'll inflame that sinful nature that's been simmering inside. Even after a thousand years in a perfect world, the human race still rebels because it's in their nature to do so. Here God proves for all time that humans have sin in their heart. That's their problem. That's your problem. That's my problem. The old adage is true. Sinning doesn't make you a sinner. You sin because you are a sinner. Selfishness and rebellion are embedded in mankind's heart. What happens at the end of the millennium proves that at the heart of man's problem is a problem in man's heart. Mankind is a rebel by nature. And it's proven here. Verse 9, They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. This flimsy coup d'etat dares to lay siege to Jesus' capital. This is the final insurrection. How dare anyone attack Jesus after He's been so good, and yet they do. The revolt is put down in short order. We're told fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And now the instigator gets his final due. Verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Jesus said that the lake of fire wasn't made for man. It was created for Satan and his angels. Here Satan is sent to his ultimate destination. Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it. Now what an ominous sight this is. White is the color of purity and holiness. A throne speaks of authority And great has the sound of permanence. I believe it's Jesus Christ, the King of the jungle, who sits on this throne. We'll learn in verse 12, this is a throne of judgment. And a long list of people judged Jesus, did they not? Caiaphas the priest, King Herod, the Jewish Sanhedrin, Pontius Pilate, the Jewish mob who screamed crucify Him. Now imagine... Each of those persons appearing at this throne to be judged by Jesus. The roles are now reversed. Trust me, there'll be a lot of squirming going on at the great white throne. In fact, everyone who comes before this throne of judgment will be squirming. The reason people appear at this judgment is because they've rejected Jesus, they've judged Jesus as unfit to follow. Now it's His turn to see how they stack up to God's righteousness. Verse 11, And then I saw a great white throne, and Him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. After a thousand years of renovations, after renewing all that sin is worn out, God decides to ditch the earth and the heavens and start brand new. We'll see a new heaven and a new earth in the next chapter. But why would God do this? I don't pretend to know all His reasons. But perhaps He wants us to know that this world and all that's in it has simply been a stage. It's been the stage on which you and I lived out our lives. On which you and I made eternal choices. The stuff that we valued. They were just props. They were just decorations. What truly mattered all along were the things that last forever. Perhaps that's the big lesson here. Second Peter 3 verse 10 tells us of this day in Revelation. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in them will be burned up. Physics teaches us that like charges repel. And yet at the center of every atom is a cluster of bonded protons. Scientists can't really explain this. They use terms like atomic glue to talk about this mystery. Or the God particle. Their explanations are vague at best. The Bible, on the other hand, is quite clear. Colossians 1 verse 17 tells us that in Christ, all things consist. It's Jesus who holds together the physical universe... And one day, He's going to let go. He's going to loosen the glue. And the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Every nucleus of every atom will explode in a fission meltdown. The material universe will be no more. And in that day, all that's left is man and His Maker. And then suddenly, everyone in the bottomless pit, all the unbelievers, every rebel who's rejected God's salvation will stand before Jesus and answer for their decision. Verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great. People you have heard of. Famous people. Great leaders. Great athletes. Great politicians. The great people of the world. Along with the small people. People you've never heard of. People who just lived their lives and muddled through life. Small and great. There will be no distinction on this day. Everyone will stand on equal footing. There'll be no distinction. All the dead, small and great, he sees standing before God. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. These books contain every deed ever done. You need to know that at this great white throne, everything is exposed. Everything is laid bare. Nothing will remain hidden. Every person who has rejected the work of Christ on the cross will be judged by the deeds they've done and the merit they've mustered. Realize there are four judgments spoken of in Scripture. First is the cross. Did you know that on Mount Calvary, in the person of Jesus, God judged the sin of the world once and for all? The punishment due my sin, that was due your sin, the punishment that was due all sin, was taken out on Jesus Christ. He bore our judgment so that God could forgive us. Thus, when we trust Jesus, our sin is judged forever. This is where your sin needs to be judged. This is where you want it judged, on the cross of Jesus Christ. Second, though, is the judgment seat of Christ. It's mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. An issue here is not our sin, but our service. Here a believer's works are judged to see what reward he'll receive. Our motivation is tested. Good deeds done out of a love for God will be valued as gold and silver. But service done out of selfish or prideful motivation will be burned up like wood, hay, and stubble. Third is the judgment of the nations. This will occur at Jesus' second coming in Jerusalem. In the valley of Jehoshaphat. Joel chapter 3 and Matthew 25 tells us that Jesus will separate the sheep from the goats. The criteria by which the nations will be judged is how they treated God's people Israel. The least of these, my brethren. Folks alive at the end of the age who survived the great tribulation, they'll be separated out. The sheep or the righteous to one side. The goats or the unrighteous to the other side. And then the fourth judgment is here. The great white throne of judgment. This is not for believers. Hey, we, our sin was judged with Jesus. We're resting in faith. This is a judgment based on the works that these people have done. You know, in Revelation chapter 4, we saw believers gathered around a multicolored throne. Another throne. That multicolored represents the manifold grace of God. That throne is surrounded by a rainbow, a symbol of his faithfulness. Four living creatures are present, each one representing a different aspect of Jesus' ministry. And yet, what a contrast we have here. This is a different throne. This throne is stark white, it's large, and it's looming. It represents God's unapproachable holiness. Unforgiven sinners, beware. Remember, if you're in Christ, your sin was judged at the cross. But according to verse 12, the people under scrutiny here are judged according to their works. Man, i got to tell you, the last thing I would ever want to have happen is to stand before God on the merit of my own good works. I mean, who but Jesus lived a good enough life to please a holy, sinless God? Isaiah 64 verse 6 tells us that in the sight of God, all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. If judged according to my efforts, I'm in big trouble. Hey, I'm resting not in my works, but in the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Hey, God doesn't grade on the curve. He grades on the cross. That's where our hope should lie. Verse 13, though, says that the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Hades opens its hatches and unbelievers are tried before God. And nobody here stands a chance. Even the best of the bunch fail the test. None of their works meet up to God's righteousness. Romans 3 verse 23 told us as much. It previewed the outcome. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, remember, Hades is like the county jail. It's the temporary holding. It's where the spirits of unbelievers are today. In Luke chapter 16, the rich man suffers in the flames of Hades, but it's not the permanent punishment. Gehenna, or the lake of fire, is the supermax prison. It's the final assignment. Once you're judged lacking at the great white throne, you're sent to the lake. The lake. Nobody wants to go to the lake. You know, there's these, there are people that, oh, I I, I don't want to I want to go to hell, be with my buddies. We'll be partying hardy in hell. No, you won't be. Despite that popular lore, there are no keg parties in hell. There are gonna be no wild orgies, no beer buddies at the lake. Only fire and brimstone. Only scorching regret. And thus verse 14, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Physical death is the first death, but the lake, eternal damnation is the second death. You know, there's an old saying, Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. If all you you do, if you're born once, you never give your life to Jesus, you're never born again, you're going to experience this second death. But if you come to Jesus, if you receive His Spirit, if you let Him do His work in your heart, if you're born again, you'll die only once. You may die physically, but you'll live forever with Jesus. Come to Jesus, be born again, and you'll face only physical death. The first death is, is the one the first death is not the one to fear. It's the second death you need to fear. That's the lake of fire. Chapter 20 closes. And everyone one not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Hey, the most important question you'll ever get asked is this. Is your name written in the book of life? Are you trusting in Jesus? Are you leaning on the cross of Christ? Or are you trying to stand on your own, in your own merits, in your own righteousness? The stakes are high here. It's the river of life, as we'll see next week, or it's the lake of fire. So the question becomes, where will you spend your eternity? These things are true. These things are real. And the call this morning is important. Where will you spend your eternity is your name written in the book of life.